Well, uh, good afternoon, I guess. It's not morning anymore. Uh, I want to welcome everybody to the Cato Institute today. Uh, all everybody here who's assembled at the Richard and Sue Ann uh, Masson Policy Center. Many of you probably haven't had a chance to see this. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, everybody joining us online and those following on Twitter using hashtag Dewey100. That's hashtag Dewey100 if you're following us on Twitter. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of Cato Center for Educational Freedom. Um, what I've noticed over the last few months as we've tried to have education events here is, I don't know who is against us, but we keep having scheduling issues. Uh, last couple of events we had, there was threats of snow, which keep people from coming to the event. And it hadn't been that snowy winter, uh, but we had threats of snow. Uh, then we had an education-related event a couple weeks ago, and wouldn't you know it, the metro shut down for the day. Never with warning, nobody has the courtesy a few months ahead to say don't schedule a forum on that day. Uh, and then today, there is a nuclear security summit right outside our doors. So. Uh, I thank everybody who actually made it through security, uh, but that may mean there are more people watching online than originally planned to. They thought, ooh, I'll come to the Cato Institute, and then they heard I'd have to get through cordons of security. So if you are following online, you can send your questions, you can converse, again, using that hashtag on Twitter, Dewey100. Uh, if you didn't gather from what I've just said or what you've read about this, today we're talking about the 100-year legacy of, I'd say, arguably the most influential book in American educational philosophy, at least, maybe in all of educational philosophy, but John Dewey's Democracy and Education. Um, it's my pleasure now to introduce our moderator, who will lead this discussion, Robert Pondicio. Robert is a senior fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Uh, he is also a senior advisor and civics teacher at Democracy Prep Public School, a network of high-performing charter schools based in Harlem, New York. He writes and speaks extensively on education and education reform issues with an emphasis on literacy, curriculum, teaching, and urban education. After 20 years in journalism, including senior positions at Time and Business Week, Robert became a fifth grade teacher at a struggling South Bronx public school in 2002. You can probably tell us which is harder. Um, well, we know already which is harder, but if you want to talk about it, go ahead. Um, he subsequently served as vice president for the Core Knowledge Foundation. Robert's articles and op-ed columns on education appeared in Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and a host of other publications. And with that, Robert, it's all yours. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, it is useful, I think, to consider the world in which democracy and education was published. Uh, Dewey completed the text in August of 1915. Uh, the United States was officially neutral at that time, though coming ever closer to joining the war on the Allied side. Uh, Dewey was born just before the Civil War in a largely agrarian America. I believe the year was 1859, if I'm not mistaken, when he was born. Uh, but the United States that greeted democracy and education had been buffeted by urban and industrial growth, by waves of immigration uh, and migration within our own borders. In Dewey's lifetime, he had witnessed a dramatic expansion of public education, new modes of transportation and communication, great leaps in scientific discovery and artistic expression. In short, the America of 1916, 100 years ago, was one that seemed to be in a permanent state of transition, full of possibility, ripe for experimentation. 
It was also one which faced unsettling amounts of unpredictability and a general sense of unease. Does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> in the 100 years since the appearance of democracy in education, it can be safely said, as Neil alluded to, uh, that no one casts a longer shadow uh, across American education than John Dewey. He is the father or was the father of the progressive education movement. He was an advocate of experimental education programs. His theory of experience led to teachers setting up subject experiences to help students learn uh, and to be excited about learning in the future. And, and while he's nobody's idea of a quipmeister uh, or, a, uh, or a memorable prose stylist, a number of his observations are still invoked uh, today. Education is not preparation for life. Education is life itself. My favorite, uh, what the best and wisest parent wants for his child, that must we want for all the children of the community. Anything less is unlovely and left unchecked destroys our democracy. So here to discuss Dewey's work and legacy are three of the best and wisest people you should ever wish to meet. Uh, Neil McCluskey, who you've met, is the director of Cato's Institute for, uh, or Center for Educational Freedom prior to, prior to arriving at Cato. Um, McCluskey served in the United States Army. I did not know this about you, Neil. Uh, taught high school English and was a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. More recently, he was a policy analyst at the Center for Education Reform. He's the author of the book, Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. He holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, where he double majored in government and English. He has a master's degree in political science from Rutgers University and a PhD in public policy from George Mason. To my extreme left, uh, no pun intended, I'm sorry. Uh, Leo Casey is executive director of the Albert Shanker Institute, a think tank affiliated with the American Federation of Teachers. I remember Leo best as one of the leading figures in the 2000 uh, member uh, sorry, 200,000 member, United Federation of Teachers when I taught uh, in the South Bronx at a public school from 2002 to 2007. Leo is the son of two New York City public school teachers. He attended Antioch College in Ohio, the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, and the University of Toronto in Canada, where he earned a PhD in political philosophy. Uh, after a stint in political organizing, Leo began his teaching career in 1984 at Clara Barton High School in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York. He taught civics, American history, African-American studies, ethical issues in medicine and political science for some 15 years. Uh, Leo has a long history in union involvement, including work as a United Farm Workers organizer and a participant uh, in the first unionization drive of graduate teaching assistants in Canada. Uh, he has won several awards for his teaching. He was named National Social Studies Teacher of the Year uh, for the American Teacher Awards back in 1992. He has also written extensively and well uh, on civics, education, unionism, and politics. Uh, last but not least, to my immediate left, Hank Edmondson is the Carl Vincent Professor of Political Science uh, Administration at Georgia College, where he has taught for nearly 30 years. His areas of interest include educational philosophy, politics, and literature, American founding thought, and the European Union. He's directed programs in Europe for the University System of Georgia for more than 20 years in a dozen different, different European countries. Uh, he has lectured widely on education reform, leadership, 
and ethics and government here and abroad. His publications include John Dewey and the Decline of American Education. That will give you some sense of where he will be speaking from today. Uh, and the forthcoming, I love this title, What Would Publius Do? Leadership Principles from the Federalist Papers. His extended family includes more teachers than he can count. His four children have, I love this, have collectively attended a public magnet school, a prep school, a Christian school, and a home school. His doctorate in political science is from the University of Georgia. This renders me the only person here who does not have a PhD, which means I need to stop talking and let the experts speak. So I'm going to ask each of these gentlemen to speak for about 10 to 12 minutes. After that, we'll have a brief discussion among ourselves. And then finally, we will open it up to audience questions both here and uh, I'm not being rude with my laptop. I'm monitoring Twitter. So if you have a question for our esteemed guests, please tweet that to us at uh, hashtag Dewey100. That's Dewey in the numeral 100. And with that, I'm going to ask Dr. Edmondson to start us off. Hey, thanks very much, Robert. Um, and thank you, Neil, for, uh, for this forum and for the opportunity to, to be here um, and uh, to be alongside uh, uh, people as uh, illustrious and as experienced as uh, Dr., um, Dr. Casey. Democracy in Education is, without question, Dewey's best-known work and the book in which he attempts to summarize, as he puts it, his entire philosophical position. Given its significance, democracy in education deserves all the attention it is given. It is his best book. All the themes of his educational thought are present. And given that Dewey's educational philosophy is the key to unlocking his philosophical thought, and if you're going to read just one book by Dewey, this is the one to read. However, democracy in education is not primarily about education. Education is incidental to a larger purpose. Democracy in education is about changing the world. It is a political philosophy, a social philosophy, and an educational philosophy all rolled into one. Dewey was part of the progressive era, and though he considered himself to be in some ways heir to the mantle of Thomas Jefferson, he thought democracy needed a transformation, and schools were the best way to make it happen. Hence the title, Democracy and Education. So the schoolhouse becomes instrumental to a larger purpose. More than any of the other advocates of progressive education, Dewey developed his ideas on political change by means of education more systematically and thoroughly than anyone else. What did Dewey want the world to look like? It's not entirely clear, although it was certainly a progressive view of democracy. He wasn't really a political philosopher, so that his writing is long on advocating the school as a means of change, but short on explaining exactly where that change would take us. He speaks of a greater sharing among Americans, not only economically, but socially and culturally as well. In his book, The Public and Its Problems, Dewey argues that Americans must develop what he calls the great community. In that way, the public is recovered from the tangle of the impersonal machinery of contemporary life, as he explains it. Tying education to politics, of course, is nothing new. We could list a long, uh, a, a long train of, uh, of philosophers. Plato, Aristotle, the American founders, Horace Mann do the same in one way or the other. 
But what is perhaps distinctive about Dewey is that he integrates the classroom more tightly with political change than others. The class becomes uh, a sort of microcosm of where society should go, or at least the experimental ground to get us to, to the place uh, where, where democracy needs to evolve. But in order to do so, he explains in Democracy and Education, he must contend not only with the inertia of existing educational traditions, but also with the opposition of those who control business and government since they depend upon the educational system to produce workers and citizens. So in order to survive, American democracy must be transformed by a revolution in education followed by a social and economic revolution. One cannot occur without the other. But education must first be revolutionized because it is, again, a quote from democracy and education, the process through which the needed transformation may be accomplished. In his book, Human Nature and Conduct, Dewey contends that freedom is meaningless if government does not actively intervene in the private sector to enable its citizens to enjoy that freedom. Freedom from oppressive legal and political measures that phrase is a quote from the book as well, is not sufficient for the enjoyment of liberty. What we need is a social environment, to use one of his words, that will help us obtain our wants as well as our needs, that from human nature and conduct. For Dewey, democracy is our common political religion, as he explains in his little book, Our Common Faith. So does this mean that Dewey politicizes education? Yeah, of course. A lot of people do. But perhaps not everyone does so as thoroughly, uh, as relentlessly, and as systematically, and as imaginatively as Dewey does. In Dewey's case, politics and education are inextricable. The impact of democracy and education and other of Dewey's writings is arguably greatest and most evident in colleges of education and the state and federal bureaucracies to which they are joined at the hip. But if you were to ask a fish to describe its environment, the last thing it would mention is the water. I think it's fair to say that Dewey is at least insufficiently read and his work is poorly understood in public schools and in colleges of education. Though future teachers often learn a little bit about Dewey, perhaps read excerpts from Democracy and Education, they never are given the opportunity uh, or, or perhaps develop the, the particular skill set to assess critically the Deweyan ideas that underlie their classes and permeate their professional organizations. Educational bureaucrats, activists, and accrediting agencies don't seem to appreciate, at times, the source of the ideas that inspire their work either. Political scientists, which is my background, who might be expected to have the training and objectivity to furnish a different perspective on Dewey's educational thought, usually concentrate on his political and social philosophy. Just quickly, um, a background on my interest in, in Dewey. One of my areas in, um, in graduate study and, and since has been American political thought. And um, at a certain point, I came to realize how much the, how important the educational ideas of the founders were to their vision of, of, uh, for the country and their belief that a proper educational system was vital to the success of this American project. And then at a certain point, 
uh, I concluded that the greatest challenge to their educational ideas came from the progressive movement, especially from Dewey, not so much the progressive movement as, as from Dewey. So that led to trying to understand Dewey as, as best I, I could in some of the other uh, projects that I have been, been involved in. I, I think it's fair to say, though, that studies of educational philosophy tend to fall through the cracks. Uh, in political science departments, it would be rare to find uh, a course on educational philosophy. You're much more likely to see something on environmental uh, policy, um, uh, foreign policy, whatever it might be. But, but education is, um, is not undertaken very often. And I'm not sure you're going to find a lot of colleges of education that, that undertake a rigorous study of educational philosophy. I don't spend a lot of time in colleges of education, and so someone could correct me. If, if, if that's not the case, but that's certainly my impression and, and my, my experience. Now, taking note of Dewey's writing style is very important. To put it charitably, and I, I'm sure uh, there are those who will disagree with me, but to put it charitably, his writing style is, is difficult. That's part of the reason that the vagueness that marks Dewey's most cherished concepts usually proves most frustrating to his readers. Biographer Ellen Ryan kindly understates the problem, suggesting that Dewey's writing is deliberately unstylish. <laughs> I wish I had that phrase when I was in graduate school. It could have been a, a good defense. Another of Dewey's intellectual biographers, Robert Westbrook, downplays Dewey's poor style, dryly committing that precision and clarity often escaped him. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes called Dewey's writing inarticulate. And William James said Dewey's writing was damnable. You might even say goddamnable. But the obscurity of his writing has conferred upon Dewey a kind of a mystique that has allowed successive generations of philosophers and educators to argue, as Dewey himself did late in his career and experience in education, that the misapplication of his educational philosophy is the consequence of a failure to grasp his ideas correctly. There was always then an opportunity for one more scholar to attempt to explain and apply what Dewey really meant. One more conference presentation, one more journal article, one more book, one more promotion. Dewey is the academic gift that keeps on giving. Dewey is often described as a philosophical pragmatist, a designation he shares with two other American philosophers, William James and Charles Peirce. He acknowledges in the closing pages of Democracy and Education that his work is best characterized as pragmatic. To pursue change through politics can be frustratingly slow. Using education to change the world is far more efficient. So why do schools seem to spend so much time spinning their wheels? Why does there seem to be so much motion? Southern writer Flannery O'Connor attended a progressive public school of sorts, and she once complained, in my school, we were always planning. This, more than anything else, seems to be what is frustrating teachers and driving some out of the profession. Later in his career, though Dewey characterized his work as experimental. And this term may well be the most appropriate of all, since progressive educational ideas aren't necessarily practical nor efficient. 
thoroughgoing progressive education is necessarily resource intensive. And when people want to demonstrate the benefits, they will usually point our attention to model projects. For example, Dewey's Laboratory Schools at the University of Chicago and reading contemporary progressive literature, there are um, several dozen schools that uh, are often offered as, as models of the opportunity to recover the promise of progressive education. But again, experimentation is not efficient. Sometimes people tell me, well, the only thing I know about John Dewey is the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> I have to respond as tactfully as I can, well, you actually know less about Dewey than you think because it was Melville Dewey, a New York librarian and no relation to John who invented the system. John Dewey never did anything so practical. <laughs> Yet once again, we find an advantage. Dewey self-described experimentalism as useful in keeping his ideas alive. So uh, a failure of a particular approach to education, even at times incoherence, is not a problem in itself, rather an opportunity for more experimentation, more observation, and more data collection. This is something that Dewey rather frankly conceded, and even late in his career, in confronting some of his critics, he, uh, he noted uh, a lot of, some of what I have proposed is, is pretty abstract. However, I am reluctant to try to outline things in a concrete form because we may never get to where we need to, to go if we don't let this happen in a more organic process. So just uh, a couple of, of um, comments in, in, in summary. Uh, number one, there's always room for innovation. As much as possible, students should be educated as individuals. Learning need not be entirely passive. Too much regimentation may discourage learning. The classroom should promote democracy and teach students to take the torch of self-government, to carry it, and to pass it on to the next generation. Secondly, I think we have to acknowledge at this point that progressive education has gone through so many ups and downs throughout the 20th century that it may defy any mean, meaningful definition. Again, reading contemporary arguments for progressive education, it's rather surprising some of the schools that are offered as models of what progressive education should be. It's, it's a pretty wide spectrum, much wider than perhaps it used to be. Now, although progressive education has provided justification, rightly or wrongly, for a lot of centralization in education, it seems to me that it best flourishes in a decentralized environment. Most models of progressive schools that we read about are either private schools or they are public schools that, it seem, that are allowed to operate with a great deal of autonomy. So more freedom may be the best the best fertile ground for progressive education rather than a centralized environment. And perhaps that's what he intended. In terms of sorting through what's good in, edu in, in progressive education and, and, and what is not, it seems to me that oftentimes the market is the best way to sort that through. One of the surprising things that I've, I've um, been reading is that uh, one model of progressive education offered by, by, by those who advocate a renaissance of progressivism are charter schools. Not something I expected, but it makes sense. Finally, what do we mean by democracy? Dewey is, is, uh, is uh, associated as often with democracy, ideas of democracy. 
uh, as he is with education. However, at times it's important to define what we mean by democracy. I think sometimes some of the disputes in education have to do with differing views of, of, of what democracy should provide. You've got uh, on one end of the spectrum uh, a laissez-faire approach to democracy, on the uh, other end of the spectrum a more progressive view. And so perhaps for us to make progress in education, it, um, a, a frank discussion of the democratic ideas behind educational proposals would be useful. Thank you. Leo Casey? Good afternoon. John Dewey is arguably the last in a long tradition of thinkers, beginning with Plato in the West and Confucius in the East, who authored systematic reflections on politics, philosophy, and pedagogy. Since Dewey died mid-20th century, there have been important intellectual contributions in each of these fields, and even bodies of work that bridge two of these fields, politics and philosophy. But there has not been the development of a single powerful oeuvre that integrated insights in all three domains of thinking. Dewey stands as the last intellect to have provided that synthesis. I find it easy to defend John Dewey because I share his fundamental stance in each of these three areas of politics, philosophy, and pedagogy. Moreover, um, these are not matters that I have considered lightly. Each of those domains has been central to my own intellectual life. I am by training a political philosopher, having written my doctoral dissertation on the problem of state authoritarianism in modern democratic and socialist political theory. And I am by vocation an educator, a teacher of civics and social studies of more than three decades. It is not my intention to attempt to convince a Cato Institute audience that Dewey's intellectual worldview is, on the whole, compatible with the outlook that at least most of you will hold. Um, however, um, there may be particular parts of his politics, pedagogy, and philosophy you might find compelling. Um, I do think that there is something to be learned from understanding the points of disagreement and therefore being able to state them precisely. So then what were Dewey's stances in politics, philosophy, and pedagogy, and how are they integrated? Politics. Dewey was a small d Democrat in the fullest meaning of that term. Democracy should not be limited to political governance, he would argue, but seen as a way of life and applied to all spheres of human society including the economy and culture. This meant that applying the central values of American democracy as he understood them, liberty and, doc and equality, to the work lives as well as the political lives of all Americans, and ensuring that all Americans have access to the essentials of human life, food, clothing, shelter, education, and healthcare, in the measures necessary for exercising the rights and the obligations, the powers of citizenship in a democracy. In this respect, Dewey's political outlook was that of a social democrat or a radical democrat, 
not unlike those found in the labor, social democratic, and democratic socialist parties that have existed on a mass space in every major advanced society during the 20th century, save our own. Um, the British Labour Party, the Canadian New Democratic Party, the German Social Democratic Party, um, the list goes on. During the 1930s, Dewey was part of efforts to create a Labour Party um, based somewhat on the model of the British Labour Party. Dewey believed in the importance of labor unions, of democracy in the workplace, and was the proud possessor of membership card number one in the American Federation of Teachers. He believed that the school and the university should not be ruled by a dictatorship of management, but should be a workplace which honored meaningful voice and important educational decisions by the educators themselves. He was a founder of the American Association of University Professors and a lifelong advocate and defender of academic freedom. This notion of democracy as a way of life applicable to all spheres of human society is the notion of democracy that Dewey uses in Democracy in Education and his other important educational works. It was the inspiration for the AFT's early slogan, Education for Democracy, Democracy in Education. Philosophy. In political philosophy, Dewey was thus a civic republican, or as some might cast it, a communitarian. Civic republicanism is a tradition that goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. Aristotle's famous dictum that man is a political animal is, in essence, the first precept that man can only achieve his true nature in the polis or in the community. And this tradition of civic republicanism has been in tension, sometimes creative, sometimes destructive, with the modern tradition of natural rights philosophy. For Dewey, there is a necessary balance between the individual and the community. And what is precisely problematic about modern capitalist culture and economy is the undermining of community. In philosophy proper, Dewey was the primary founder of the school of pragmatism, the only school of philosophy which is distinctly American in its origins. This philosophical stance is often misunderstood by those who have not studied philosophy. It is not a reflection of what we understand to be pragmatism in everyday language, that is, doing what works. Rather, it is a rejection of metaphysical notions of truth with a capital T, grounded either in divine revelation through holy scriptures or in some transcendental concept of human nature. That is not to say, as Professor Edmondson does in his book, that Dewey and pragmatism is a form of nihilism that has no standards of right and wrong, no standards of truth and falsehood. A rejection of metaphysical truth is not a rejection of all small t truths. Dewey and pragmatism seeks to capture philosophically the modern scientific method of constant investigation and examination in which one arrives at small t provisional truths but understands them to be provisional and always the possibility of revising them 
in the spirit of further investigation. One needs to be open to the revision and even the potential that the small t truths we hold today, um, tomorrow, are shown to be false. Now, much is made of the fact um, that Dewey's writing um, can be obscure. He was not a journalist. But anyone who has read the philosophical traditions, and I, I think back to my years as a graduate student struggling through Hegel, um, knows that um, clarity in philosophical writing is not a common feature. Um, and so I don't think it is particularly dispositive of the value of philosophy. Um, I would say, again, in contrast um, to the position Professor Edmondson takes in his book, that Dewey is not a Nietzschean. He's not a Rousseauian. Um, and the notion that he holds to some sort of nihilism is simply wrong. Um, as a pragmatist, I believe there can be multiple readings of texts, not a single text. One can find different meanings in a text. But I have to say that Professor Edmondson's reading of Dewey as a Nietzschean um, is defined by the complete lack of any textual support in Dewey's writing himself. And it ignores the fundamental incompatibility of Nietzsche's misogyny, his anti-Semitism, and his right-wing authoritarianism with Dewey's worldview. If anything, in his youth, Dewey engaged the Hegelian and Kantian traditions. Now, Dewey was religious in his youth and was at best an agnostic. He did not attack religion and certainly saw a place for it in a pluralist American culture. What he would reject is the idea that religious revelation or tradition is a substitute for public reason as a basis of the political order. He would not accept that interracial marriages or marriages between individuals of the same sex could be prohibited simply because it was forbidden in holy scriptures or because we have always forbidden it. Pedagogy. Dewey's pedagogy was student-centered in the sense that he believed that students need to be actively engaged in learning, that they must create meaning and understanding for themselves, and that the role of the teacher is to engender that process of active engagement. This view is closely connected to his conception of democracy and to his view of human development. For him, education is a public good precisely because the end of education is education into democratic citizenship. What does that mean in a classroom? Here I speak as much from my own personal view um, as the view of Tom Dewey. And I think it comes down to two, <coughs> excuse me. It comes down to two essential po points. First, a teacher should teach how to think, not what to think. Teach students that they have to defend, defend positions with logical arguments and supporting evidence, that they must engage the positions of others, that they must work at developing their own position. But do not, do not teach them that there is a particular doctrine or a particular dogma that they must address. If you become a teacher, you must have enough confidence in your own views that you believe that a, a process of open argumentation 
will lead the great many to adopt those views given an opportunity to do so. Second, students learn how to be democratic citizens by engaging in a classroom that is constructed as a model of democratic deliberation. There should be freedom for the expression of all the views in the classroom. There should be a demand that students engage their views with other views in the classroom. There should be examination of all views by standards of logical argument and by standards of supporting evidence. In short, our classrooms should be the antithesis of the current Republican presidential campaign. <laughs> now, contrary to Professor Edmondson in his book, I do not believe that these Deweyan views of education are either Rousseauian or Summerhillian. I think both of those are essentially anarchistic views of education. Dewey is not anti-authority. He is anti-authoritarian. His opposition to communism was well known and a very important feature of his political life. What Dewey conceives of is teachers as a democratic authority. There is a tension in being an authority figure and being in democratic, but Dewey thought it was important to embrace that tension. And this goes, I think, to the larger work of Dewey. He is always attempting to escape dualistic choices and to see them as tensions in which they both must be embraced in a positive fashion. Liberty versus equality, individual versus community. These are constant themes and they find themselves in expression in Dewey's philosophy, in his politics, and in his pedagogy. Thank you very much. Uh, Robert, you were lamenting, or at least you pointed out, that you're the only one up here without a PhD. Well, from what I'm gathering when we talk about how Dewey writes, how I know I write, that means you're the only one here who can write anything anyone understands. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said for that, believe me. Um, uh, I should also say uh, that Hank, Leo, and, and Robert are probably all uh, greater experts, more knowledgeable on Dewey himself than I am. Uh, they almost certainly know more about the pedagogical fights, the curricular fights, and even the philosophical fights about them. Um, I know a fair amount about democracy and education. That's what I'm going to talk about. But these are the guys you need to listen to if you really want to get uh, into the nitty-gritty of John Dewey and pedagogy curriculum, all things which are often what are most argued about with Dewey. Um, you probably know, you know, one of the reasons that I don't get into curricular debates or pedagogical debates is what I want is for people to choose schools based on their philosophy, what their pedagogy is, what their curriculum is, and I'd like to see those schools compete for business. I'd like to see specialization where people can find these, the pedagogy, the curriculum they think is best for their child or is most consistent with what they want out of school. So I tend not to get into the debates about what's the best curriculum, what's the best pedagogy, because I think that people should choose, and as you, as sort of an amateur looking at you know, evaluating curriculum pedagogy, I'm not sure that the evidence is wholly on one side or the other. Is constructivism uh, better than uh, core knowledge or something like that? 
unfortunately, uh, and, and I have had trouble when you read Democracy in Education, knowing exactly where Dewey might stand on this, but I don't think he necessarily wanted a system of education that was based fundamentally in parental choice. Uh, as he wrote in Democracy in Education, he wants education to break down kind of barriers and spheres that people are in, including the family. Often there's an expectation if you have school choice and the family's values are the only values that will be taught to students. I'm not sure that that's accurate, but because of that, I think he wouldn't necessarily have been a big fan of school choice. Democracy, he says, quote, is primarily a mode of associated living. And he also said pretty clearly that he saw education as a way not of reproducing society as it is, but remaking society. And often when you want to remake something, it's, it's, it tends to be something that is a top-down process. Uh, that said, I actually think that Dewey was kind of ahead of his progressive peers, some of his progressive peers, in understanding how the actual mechanism by which people of different racial, ethnic, class, all sorts of backgrounds, could actually come together. This is largely uh, comes down along a split that the historian David Tyatt calls a split between administrative progressives and pedagogical progressives. Uh, administrative progressives, and this is sort of a generalization, we can have lots of debates about what they are, what they stand for, so I hope you'll pardon a generalization, but they typically wanted sort of top-down expert control of an education system. This was the time, you know, roughly 1880 to 1920, you know, again, rough dates, where there was an expectation or a belief that you needed to have experts, often people who were elite, sort of take charge of society, apply science to society and scientific problems, and engineer the outcomes that the elites thought were best. And so you had sort of a, you know, you had the beginning of school districts, uh, of IQ testing, of tracking based on testing and things like that during this period. And this was, again, associated with what were called administrative progressives. You would have sort of a factory model of education run by scientific experts to get the outcomes that they thought were best. Uh, the name you may associate with this most often is a guy named Elwood Cubberly. There's a quote that may be apocryphal, but I'm going to use it anyway. I've been able to find the source of at least part of it to just know that this may not have actually come from him. We have a crack research team hunting this down right now. We'll get back to you as soon as we know for sure the source. Um, so, but, so just take that with a grain of salt. But he is at least quoted as saying, we should give up the exceedingly democratic idea that all are equal and that our society is devoid of classes. The employee tends to remain an employee. The wage earner tends to remain a wage earner. One bright child may easily be worth more to the national life than thousands of those of low mentality. So this was sort of the mindset that we kind of know where people are heading, where, where students are heading. Often, again, this was associated with IQ testing. You say, we know what the aptitudes are of somebody. And the idea was you would sort of direct them where you thought they were going to go anyway. His quote on immigrants, which I do know the source of definitively, so no way is this apocryphal, so feel free to use it anytime you talk to anybody. Uh, on immigrants, he said, our task is to break up these groups or settlements and it, the reason he talks about groups and settlements is understand that in this period you had Im, a lot of immigration, and immigrants sort of naturally tended to live with other immigrants of their own group. This is, there are a lot of reasons for this, but one of them is it's most easy to assimilate when you know a lot of, you're familiar or comfortable with a lot of things that are going on in your community. You can't just be dropped into the middle of a 
new country all by yourself and, and expect to have a successful uh, assimilation. But the concern was because you have small school districts, often controlled by these ethnic enclaves, um, that those people, those districts, were not learning what you'd want all Americans to learn. This was a big concern uh, of people, often administrative progressives, uh, about how schools were run, which is why they tried to take elite control. So anyway, back to the quote, he says, our task is to break up these groups or settlements, to assimilate and amalgamate these people as a part of our American race, and to implement in their children, as far as can be done, the Anglo-Saxon conception of righteousness, law and order, and popular government, and to awaken in them a reverence for our democratic institutions and for those things in our national life which we as a people hold to be of abiding worth. Now, in particular interest is that term implanting, that at least the vision you get is sort of a top-down mechanism where the kids sit passively and somebody who's in control puts things in their heads. I think Dewey sort of rejected that, at least in democracy and education, looking for what I think was really a more humane approach. He essentially wanted diverse kids to go in schools together, and again, this is probably a simplification, but to more or less work in projects of a shared interest. They both were, in, or they were all interested in, and ultimately by doing this, sort of learned that they had a common humanity. Uh, as he wrote, schooling should be geared toward creating, and I quote, and again, this is right out of the book, so there's no way this is apocryphal. Uh, as he wanted to create, quote, a society in which every person shall be occupied in something which makes the lives of others better worth living, and which accordingly makes the ties which bind people together more perceptible, which breaks down the barriers of distance between them. Now, this idea of breaking down social distance is something you hear people when they talk about social capital, you know, sociologists will talk about it a lot. Social distance is what we often say of, you know, what separates one racial group from another, one ethnic group from another, one religious group from another. And how do you minimize those separations, those gulfs between people? And that's what explicitly Dewey is talking about here. Uh, and it sort of anticipated, once you get to the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, there's a guy named Gordon Allport, who was a social psychologist, and he had something called contact theory. The contact theory was actually very straightforward when you first think about it, which is, if we want to come overcome stereotypes, prejudices, we need to be bring individuals belonging to different groups together and get to know each other as actual people. And this made sense because if you think about, we have finite minds, and so when we encounter something new, we grab whatever clues we can to try and make sense of it. But often that is stereotyping. So if we meet somebody who's not our race for the first time, we'll say, well, what have I heard about this group? And I've got to make those decisions quickly. Maybe it's based on some sort of primordial need to defend yourself. Either way, we have finite minds, and so we need to make these uh, these shortcuts, but the idea of contact theory is get to actually know people of another group, learn about their common humanity, learn that your stereotypes are wrong. But Alport, very importantly, didn't just say, well, you could put people physically together and they learn to get along. He had four, actually, provisos that he thought would be important to, to have successful contact to, though, he said were absolutely necessary. The status has to be equal status contact and in pursuit of common goals. So equal status uh, was so that you didn't automatically assume, well, one group here is superior, one group is inferior, which would really just probably 
reinforce stereotypes more than it would overcome stereotypes. And you'd have sort of a situation in which one group just assumed, well, we give the orders here, we're the ones who are important, we're the ones who have all the knowledge. So you'd had to have some sort of equal status contact. You didn't want to perpetual, uh, perpetuate stereotypes, you wanted to break them. And then the pursuit of common goals would encourage working together. You can imagine you could put people together in a room, you, you, may even be of equal status, but if you're all, say, competing to uh, you know, make the most money or to win some contest, what you're going to do is you're going to be at odds with that person. You may often resort to using the stereotypes or whatever else you can to sort of defeat them. So you want to have a pursuit of common goals where working together is what's necessary to achieve something you both want. And then you're working as a team. And when you work as a team, you learn more about you know, what's good about that person, again, about their common humanity, rather than you need to sort of isolate them, to set them aside so that you can succeed. Um, and that builds teamwork, and it builds trust. And a lot of what is how you reduce this social distance is you have to try and build trust between different groups. Uh, this sort of contact really does seem to help. Uh, there's research into this. Probably the most comprehensive is a meta-analysis by social psychologists Thomas Pettigrew and Linda Tropp that included 515 studies. Now, it sounds like, wow, 515 studies is the definitive answer. You do have to take even this with a grain of salt. Uh, many of these studies occurred in psychology labs, in colleges, with psychology students. You can start to see you may not be able to extrapolate those results to all of society. Um, some were, were of unpublished dissertations, so they were things that are hard to track down, hard to replicate. But Understanding that, there does seem to be a real positive effect of bringing uh, diverse people together, and it's enhanced when you have this pursuit of common good, this equal status contact. Uh, interestingly, of the studies that are in there that I was able to find and actually read, the ones that have the, and there is also a great summary in the back where you tallies all sorts of, of components of these studies, but some of the, the most effective uh, intergroup contact was in a situation you don't want to replicate in schools in any way, but you can see how it meets the provisos, which is combat. Uh, there was huge psychological studies of uh, veterans after World War II, and one of the many things they looked at was the effects on intergroup, con of intergroup contact and being in combat. How did that work to change people's visions about other groups? And it had a clear positive effect. You couldn't imagine, though, a more mutual self-interest situation with more mutual self-interest on the line than combat. But this shows that that sort of thing works. But of course, we don't want to replicate that in schools. Um, so then the problem in education uh, is how do you get the diverse groups together and how do you make it equal status contact? Uh, there's some talk in, in Hank's book, uh, and I think that this is true, but somebody can correct me if it's wrong, but Dewey famously created the lab school at the University of Chicago, but always had trouble bringing in really diverse student bodies. The student bodies tend to be from sort of well-educated, relatively well-to-do parents. It was hard to actually do the experiment, the broad experiment he wanted to do in the lab school. Because um, it's not that easy to get diverse people who tend to, people tend to like to self-segregate a lot. Um, it's 
Often immigrants, of course, would live, again, with people of the same immigrant groups because it's just easier to live that way, especially when you're a new country. But it's also based in religion. It's based in language. And there's been some research that found you know, people who like wine tend to live in the same areas. People like RVs tend to live in the same areas. We are kind of remarkable self-segregators. So you can see why this is hard. And then if you think about the efforts we've had through public policy to engineer togetherness, they, they typically haven't worked particularly well. Blessing is the one that comes most to mind because it's by the most uh, concrete form of kind of forced togetherness, saying we will physically move you from where you are to a school where you're together. Well, what surveys have repeatedly found is that in the abstract, the vast majority of people like this idea. They like the idea of kids should be going to school with kids who are different in all sorts of different ways, so religiously, ethnically, racially, along those lines. It's usually about 80% or so if you look at these surveys, could be 70% like that. But it's flipped on its head when they say, well, what if you had to move your child from the local public school that you're zoned to go to? That's easy to get to. The vast majority then say, well, I mean, I think it's very important that they go to school with kids unlike themselves, but it's much more important they go to their local school. And that's a problem because people tend to live with people who are like themselves. And so you see very clearly in these survey results that people will not have their children. They'll greatly resist having their children moved, even if they like the ideal of the fully integrated school. Uh, and I think force also, by the way, kind of implies unequal status. I mean, we saw that in busing. The implication of busing was one group needed to be in the school of the other group because the other group had some sort of big advantage. Um, and you don't want to continue that unequal status. Um, and also, if you look at some of the research on those schools where that happened, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that you had decreasing in social distance among these groups. The bigger problem is, of course, it couldn't be sustained because people wanted to go to the local school. But when it did happen, it didn't seem to have particularly strong effects. But again, these studies you've got to take with a grain of salt. There are lots of problems. They didn't pretest. You know, how did you feel about this other group before the integration? Things like that. Um, so if you can't force this sort of togetherness, then what do you do? Unfortunately, here's probably what Dewey didn't want. So he certainly wanted people working on these projects of mutual self-interest, learning about their common humanities, which is great. But I think if you can't force people together, what do you have to do? You have to have school choice. You have to give them something that they all want, and that thing they want attracts them. This is kind of the idea of magnet schools. In fact, magnet schools were very much a part of desegregation, kind of especially after busing, became so unpopular, saying, let's give people of different groups something they all desire, and that will bring them together. You bring these things together, and it attracts people. You know, you may want an arts education, you may want a religious school. And then not only is it something you all want, there's equal status contact in, the, in that you've all chosen it. You all have the same agency. You've decided this is what you want. And those things you choose may already provide kind of this bridging capital that overcomes what separates you. If you all want a Baptist school, that religion, to learn about your religion, to practice your religion, may be something that helps overcome, say, racial divides or linguistic divides. If you want arts education, you may, as Dewey would want, work on art projects together. You may have people of different races interested in learning more about sculpture or painting or whatever it is. The important thing is it's doable because you're not trying to force people together when they don't want to be forced. And it is equal status. It is working on things of mutual self-interest. Of course, the problem is this would take time. 
And when we talk about public policy problems or just about anything else, nobody likes to take any time to do anything. We're tweeting this event. Nobody likes to take time to do anything. If it's more than 140 characters, it's taking too much time for us. But the reality is it's going to take time. But what we've seen is efforts to sort of coerce togetherness also take time. In fact, they haven't been particularly successful, although we've been doing it for decades. Uh, and I think we have to give credit to Dewey in democracy and education. While he wanted people, I think, I assume, to sort of be forced to go to school together, probably in public schools, he recognized very clearly that unity could not be force-fed. It had to develop naturally, and I think that's crucially important. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, we are going to throw it open to questions shortly, but first, uh, Leo, I want to see if you can respond directly to something that Neil just said, where he, he surmised uh, that Dewey would not, I want to get his words correct, he would not have been a fan of school choice. Isn't school choice inherently democratic? Is Neil right? Well, I, I, I will go back to, to where I ended, which I, th I think Dewey was always trying to figure out um, how you escape from these um, dualisms which are presented, um, you know, one of which is, you know, choice versus public. Um, and so um, for, for Dewey, um, there is something essentially public that requires education to be a public good, which is not to say that I think, and, and this is sheer speculation on our part, because Dewey obviously passed away a long time before these choices um, were put before them, which is not to say that I think that Dewey would be opposed to some system of public school choice. Um, but he, he did believe um, that the fundamental purpose of education uh, is education for democratic citizenship. And so there was this sense of an important, um, to use a must, Use, misused term, common core <laughs> that needed to be um, at, the, at, at the center of education. Um, and so uh, I think he would, he, he would fear that to have simply a system of choice um, would, would mean to lose that common core. Um, and so he would um, want to find some sort of system that was able um, to maintain that at the same time that there was some pluralism in the school. I think he would certainly agree that there should be like pluralism of pedagogy, that you shouldn't force um, uh, parents to send their children to a school that has Dewey in pedagogy if they have some fundamental objection to it. But I still think that that issue of education as a democratic citizenship is just so important for him that he would want to maintain that, that public core. Uh, I believe he can channel Dewey better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Edmondson, do you agree? Would, would Dewey be a choice advocate or not? I, I think I would, uh, would tend to agree with Dr. Casey. I, I think it would be hard to, to reconcile that with Dewey's goals and his interest in creating, once again, to quote the phrase, uh, a great community and uh, the emphasis that he puts upon, upon the, uh, the public. However, I, I, I would also say that I think that can be achieved just fine with choice. 
Uh, I mean, one of the, uh, the criticisms I think is often spurious of uh, homeschools, private schools, is um, number one, students are not properly socialized there, which I think is one of the reasons parents might choose that. <laughs> uh, they're not interested in the kind of... <laughs> Uh, socialism, uh, 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 socialization is, is, is not what they're after, at least as they might, might uh, perceive the, the possibilities. I think you also tend to get some pretty, some pretty patriotic and uh, well-informed um, uh, kids out of private schools, uh, home schools, charter schools. So I think it actually would achieve his, his goal. Um, but I would tend to agree with Dr. Casey that I don't know that Dewey would perceive it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, can I, can I, now I'm prepared to say something. I wouldn't say what Dewey would say, but I'll say what I'll say, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it is, it is, this comes to a sort of a deeper question is, and, and I don't think this is how Dewey thought, but are the schools, this the education system, the way or the vehicle we should be expecting to use to socialize mm. people? I think it, it's clearly contested ground, and when you have contested ground, you have a lot of problems. People can't agree. You don't necessarily get then things that are rigorous taught. You get different things taught. But I think that we kind of overlook that people in this country who are different, uh, think about immigrants. Often immigrants came here because they wanted to be successful in this country, and they recognized that to be successful, you have to sort of understand the norms of the people in the society. You have to adopt them. You eventually have to adopt the language. Um, and even Dewey, uh, in democracy and education, I have a lot of tabs, so I can never find the one I want. Um, but in there somewhere, he talks about that, look, business, commerce, things like that actually helps to bring people together. So I don't know that we should say education is necessarily the system to bring people together. It may actually be a dangerous ground because it involves kids. We tend to get more angry more con contest, more what happens, more conflict. Maybe we should be saying something else is the way to bring people together. In fact, people would want to learn the norms of society for their own benefit. Again, I don't know that that's mainly what Dewey would say, mm -hmm. but that's what I'd say. Mm -hmm. Professor Edmondson, you had said, uh, I made a note of this, that, that you believe that Dewey is insufficiently read and poorly understood. What would a K-12 system look like if he were better read and better understood? Read by whom and understood. I, I, in the context of your comment, I right. assume you meant those of us who were in the profession and who read them in grad school. Right, right. Or policymakers, you know. Right. Uh, what, what would it let? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that it would. Uh, I, the, the point I was trying to, to make is I think in order for us to evaluate critically um, what education should look like, and what reforms are needed in education, we need to understand the, the uh, educational philosophies in the background. Uh, since Dewey is as dominant as he is, and I think that uh, Dr. Casey is exactly right, he's the last great educational philosopher, but also, you know, since I, I would add what I, or reiterate what I said earlier about his superseding the, the uh, thoughts of the founders, I, I think, Understanding that would at least put us in a position to assess better what's going on, exactly how we might do things better. I, I, I don't think I'm prepared to give a good answer to, to that, but I just I think that we 
would be in, in a better position to make corrections where they need to, to be made and to strengthen things that are, are going well. I, I'm sorry if that seems to be a, an evasion on my part. But. Well, let me try to ask the same question differently, which is, in American education, do we suffer from too much Dewey or not enough Dewey? Oh, I would say too much. <laughs> Please say more. <laughs> I, I think that some of the trends that we, we, um, we see in education today uh, have a background in, um, in Dewey's thought, and I guess I tried to cite uh, uh, some of those. One of the things we seem to be doing is scrambling for curricula, understanding um, what the curriculum should look like. Dewey's often accused of clearing books out of the classroom. I, I think that's unfair, and I think he properly responded, responded to that. But given the emphasis on uh, um, experimentation, experimentalism, um, I, I think that even though he argued that many had misapplied his, his concepts, I think in some ways his ideas lend themselves to at least um, a, a, a difficulty in recognizing material that's authoritative and should be authoritative. The second thing I would point is, and I would pick up on, on, um, on Neil's um, point, and perhaps you quoted this out of Dewey, I can't, I can't remember. It might be your 11th pink, pink tab from the top, but I, I, I don't know. I'll check. Yeah. Um, but uh, you said that Dewey wants uh, students to work in projects of mutual interest and realize they have a common humanity or that might be an aspiration that Dewey would have. I think one of the things we have to recognize is there's only so much time in the classroom, so many hours in the day. And I think that one of the difficulties we have in trying to achieve so much politically in the classroom is that um, there, we, we are not prioritizing as we, as we should. Um, I think many of his goals, and the goals that I think uh, Dr. Casey articulated uh, are, are, are admirable goals. I think the question becomes, can you do all of that in a six-hour school day or however long you have in, in, in the classroom? And so I think some of that confusion is associated certainly with Dewey's ideas and the progressive movement. Leo, I want to ask you the exact same question. Too much Dewey or not enough? Well, I, I think it's the cost of being an important influential thinker, that there are a multiplicity of readings of what you've written. Um, and as a consequence, you know, you can even find contradictory interpretations. Um, what I would say, and, and, and perhaps it's, it's better to go um, right to the concrete here. So um, where I think we could use more of Dewey is, for example, um, how we teach the Declaration of Independence. I, I certainly agree um, that the notion that, um, that a, a Dewey in education of teaching students um, how to think, not what to think, um, it, it, it's, it's a complete misreading that that somehow involves going away from important fundamental texts. Um, but I think there's a, a way of teaching the Declaration of Independence um, that teaches students the, the language, the grammar of American democracy. The Declaration of Independence has been the document in which um, 
groups of people excluded from American democracy have, have constantly formulated um, their agenda for inclusion. Um, it's, it's the language of the Seneca Falls um, Declaration of Feminism. It's the, it's the language of the Civil Rights Movement. It's the language of the, of the labor movement in its um, 19th century um, civic republicanism. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, a way to teach the Declaration of Independence um, for students to understand that they're not just looking at a text in history, um, but that it's a text that they must own and that they must be able to use to be citizens in American democracy. And we need a lot more of that in our education. Um, a lot of what passes for civics education um, is guaranteed to make students feel completely inspired about being a citizen. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I guess that's an argument that my particular vision of, of Dewey, um, Dewey's educational pedagogy is appropriate, but, um, and we need more of that, but that's the argument I would make. Um, I'm going to throw this open to questions in, in just a moment, but let me ask Leo one last question, because I'm guessing you have been in more schools than everybody else here combined. Uh, in your in your professional role, so if if we wanted to take someone today to see the most full realization of Dewey's work and attitudes and desires in an American school, where would you take him? And part B, would Neil like that school? Um, well, it's harder to channel Neil. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. Yeah, um, I'm right cause, here. Cause I, um, but. But to die to be what I would say is this: that um, that there's a there's a way in which an education um, Dewey is the altar at which we genuflect and then disregard, um, and so there's not. I, I can't think of a large number of schools that that I, I can think of a, of of a couple of them um, like Harvest Collegiate, um, a New York City public school high school of choice. Um, and, um, and, and I think that, that what, what one finds in a school like that is this centrality of education into democratic citizenship, that the students need to develop the sense of their own power as citizen, that this is the most important office in a democracy, um, that they have the capacity um, to, to change their neighborhood, their community for the better. Um, and those schools do exist. Um, it's a lot harder to create those schools than, than people would imagine, um, but there are exemplars that, that are definitely out there. Oh, go ahead. Did you ask something else? Well, why don't you respond to that? Oh, I wasn't actually going to respond to that, so if you yeah, want, yeah, I was just going to actually respond to the previous question. Oh, okay. Well, I'm um, not responding to something even more previous. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 we'll, work, we'll work gradually back to the introductory remarks. Yeah, right. Um, well, all I was going to say actually was when we talked about was should there be more Dewey, I do wish that we would talk more about why education is public. Hmm. And talk about what is its role in democracy and these kind of questions. So when I see this addressed, I often see people say, well, we've got to have public schools because it's a democracy and they're crucial for democracy. And nobody talks about why. And But it seems to me then that most of what we talk about in the school system has nothing to do with why it's public. And it's all about how do we get the best test scores mm. and prepare the best STEM graduates. And I think we really ought to re-examine on a 
constant basis. Why is it there are public schools? What are we trying to accomplish? And what is the role of education and democracy? Instead of just having as kind of a toss-off line that, oh, we got to have these schools because it's a democracy. Really need to delve into why that is. It, it's, it's telling that education for college, career, and citizenship has become education for college and career. People just dropped out the third term. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. Uh, something I find myself saying quite often is that uh, the public's interest is served by preparing children to take their full place as participants in our democracy. How that happens, under whose roof, uh, on whose dime, frankly, is a, is a subsidiary concern. Uh, but then we go back to the whole idea of how, what is the best means to accomplish that? Is it is it the system we have? Is it is it Leo system, Dewey system, is it Neil system? I'm agnostic. Please. Just want to respond to something earlier that Dr. Casey had said in, in characterization of, of, of my work on Dewey. Um, and, and that was the association, and, and don't let me misstate what you said, but uh, I think you used a phrase that I argued that Dewey was Nietzschean and that his pragmatism was the equivalent of, of, uh, of nihilism. Um, and I think that's an overstatement. I, you know, I probably need to go back and read my book because um, I, I, I don't remember it like that. Um, I, I think one of the arguments I was making in association with Nietzsche, and, and I'm sure you would be the first to point out he hardly mentions Nietzsche. He was certainly well-educated in German philosophy, but that's not a conspicuous uh, part of his, uh, of his philosophy at all, or the authorities. He, of course, he doesn't, he doesn't resort to many authorities at all. I think the point that, um, that, that I, I intended to make is that at a certain point, you know, too, too much of this experimentation may not lead anywhere, but we may for, it may leave us, leave us with not much left over. Um, and, and I think at some point you call that nihilistic. That is, in the interest of creating something new, we may lose what we have. Um, and then another way of putting that, it was Nietzsche himself who said creators must first be destroyers. Now, his point in, in that is simply that if you want to do something meaningful, create, uh, you want to create something meaningful, then you have to make space for it. You have to make room for it in a philosophical, cultural sort, sort of way. There's a great deal of emphasis in progressive education and in Dewey as well, uh, emphasis on the creativity of students. And I think at some point that actually can lead with their not having as much as we would want them to have. A, a quick illustration, and, and this connection to Dewey would be tenuous, although some of the authors of the program came uh, several decades ago, value, Values Clarification, did cite Dewey as authority. And, and um, simply put, clar Values Clarification would be an opportunity for students to own their, their values, to own their, their principles, and at a fairly early age. And I think that can go two ways. One is they can come out decisive and firm and, and uh, clear-minded about what they believe. But I think, uh, you know, if you're talking about fourth, fourth graders, they may come out without anything. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of association that I would make with, uh, with, with the, really the wisdom that, uh, that Nietzsche and his, uh, and, and, and his writings offered us. Okay. Your turn. There is a microphone, correct? Uh, so raise your hand if you have a question. I'm going to ask that you keep it uh, brief and pithy, if possible, and, and do us the kindness of identifying yourself when, when it's time to ask your question. Right here, sir.
Hi, I'm Bill Rice um, with the National Endowment for the Humanities, though not speaking for that institution here, but in my private capacity. Just to touch back on a few questions or, or matters that were raised. Uh, first of all, as to the absence of the philosophy of education being taught in schools of education, that, that is true. Uh, at NEH, we're sponsoring a uh, seminar for school teachers in the philosophy of education, and it's a big eye-opener for all those who participate. Um, this is run by Peter Gibbon at Boston University. So that is really a, a, a big missing piece. So if we're thinking about whether Dewey is influential or not, it's secondhand. At, and, or, or, or what? Not, not primarily, um, not primary or firsthand. Uh, the other matter that, just in terms of the question of where Deweyan principles are enacted, I would submit the schools run by the Society of Friends, the Quakers. That is one area where many, I mean, just from some exposure, I just. But the question I want to ask the, is about what Dewey's background and the times which you've all began with could tell us. Um, he's from Vermont, an agrarian society, where there was this town meeting. That was democracy in action. And, and that, it, is that what he was after, in a sense? That's my one question. And then the other would be, this is a time of the McGuffey readers, another highly standardized national curriculum, which we now lack. Was he, in a sense, assuming that some of the bedrock of instruction would sir, would continue even if his ideas were enacted. Thank you. I will respond to just a piece of that and then turn it over to Dr. Casey. In terms of Quaker schools being uh, an example, um, just the other day, uh, catching up on reading by progressive educators, and they offered Sidwell Friends School as uh, an example of a progressive uh, school. So um, the, the question is, um, was John Dewey an educational Bernie Sanders? <laughs> um, no, um, I do think it, it's interesting, uh, um, the, the kind of Vermont context and the early Dewey. Um, and I do think that, that there's actually a, a criticism um, that one can make of, of Dewey here, um, which is that I, I do think his notions of community and democracy tend to be overly face-to-face -face and overly direct. Mm. All right, and so and and whereas there is certainly a a place for that sort of democracy, um, and and really that's it, it is in those institutions that people learn democracy. When you think of like, for example, where immigrants to the country, how do they learn democracy? They learn it in face-to-face in -face institutions where they're engaged in democratic activity, whether it be a church or a union or, or some other institution. I do think um, his, his, that is an unnecessarily restrictive view of community um, and democracy, and that you need to have much more of a role for representative forms of democracy. And, and certainly in our society today, you need to have a, a role for communities which are not simply direct face-to-face -face communities that are, are geographically rooted. We need to have a, a broader conception of community. Um, maybe it may be that it's, it's somewhat unfair criticism of him because he couldn't anticipate all of, of where we see society having developed, but I, I do think it, it, it's a criticism of, 
of, of that particular conception of democracy and, and community if it's just simply applied. I'll just add for my purposes, I, I'm, I'm an unrepentant E.D. Hirschian. So uh, your, the, the second part of your question about whether or not uh, Dewey presumed uh, something like a McGuffey reader or a national curriculum is fascinating. I honestly have never thought about it. But uh, my, my own conflict with Dewey is that it doesn't make sense in the absence of that. So I think that's a really provocative vein of ore for me to mind. So I, I thank you for that. Uh, I forgot to mention, if you're, if you're on Twitter, our hashtag is Dewey100, uh, so you can submit questions um, via Twitter as well. Um, and right here in front, please. I'm Sam LaBelle. I'm an education policy consultant. And I'm wondering what Dewey would think of the modern accountability movement, both in terms of accountability for students and accountability for teachers. You want to take the first shot at that? Uh, I, I can. I mean, my guess is that he would find it awfully restrictive and oppressive. I, That's my bullshit. I agree. There, there is, you know, there is at the center of Dewey and philosophy and pedagogy is the idea of learning through doing. And so um, the, the notion that the, the measure of good education um, would be standardized exams and that that can tell us both um, how well a school is doing and how well a teacher is doing. I think he would um, really have some profound issues with that conception. Um, I don't think he has problems with the idea of accountability generally, but I think the current regime of accountability he, he would certainly dispute. Uh, my name is Ted Bender. I'm currently working with Montgomery County, Maryland as a substitute teacher, so I can be here today. I'm to ask you to speak up just a okay, little bit. Okay, I'll please. try. Um, as a takeoff from the previous question, uh, but first a very brief preface, I think your discussion of the issues in today's forum are remarkably astute and thoughtful. I think this conference could have been held at Aspen Institute, Brookings Institute, Center for American Progress, i.e. you're really exploring in depth major issues that in the marketplace of government and public discussion don't get discussed. So as a takeoff from accountability, the banner coming out of the Department of Education is race to the top, race to the top. And that sparked a protest. Thank you. Let me, let me try to turn that into a question, which is, what would a Deweyan accountability system look like? Thank you for that. Is that a fair? <laughs> well, I, I can't channel Dewey again, but what I will do is not actually answer your question. Um, <laughs> but I'll ask you if I can quote pretty much all you said about how great this panel is for my performance review, <laughs> because I put it together and I think it's really outstanding too. So, all right. I'm going to need your name afterwards. Um, but I also, though, think that you're bringing up the race to the top is really important. It goes back to what I said before, which is our education system, and when we talk about education, seems to just be obsessed with 
what's a ranking or what's a test score. And education should be about so much more than that. Dewey would probably agree with that, but you know, I, can again, can't speak for him. But I do think that race to the top is sort of captured, at least this sort of phraseology we use of race to the top, sort of captured how narrow we have made our measure of what education mm. is. Um, just a couple of questions to your, your very, very good points. Um, and I thought the, the best statement you made or the question you made is, how do we know when we're at the top or what is the top? So relating that to, to Dewey, and, and Dr. Case may disagree, but accountability is a real problem in Dewey's philosophy. Um, he, um, and, and deliberately so, he, he, he uh, eschews, uh, he keeps at arm's length uh, certain goals and, 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 and standards as he understands that they have traditionally uh, hampered education and have, have um, created an environment which students are unable to develop what he calls intelligence. Intelligence is a huge word for Dewey. It's never quite defined. It has something to do, though, uh, with a scientific uh, method, but it's much more than that. The term that probably lends itself to even, even more ambiguity for him is, is growth. And, and we can sort of guess at that. We can get a, we have a, impression of what he means by that. But I think some of that is filtered down uh, and uh, to, to educational practice, and I think it hasn't been helpful. And I, I would just say that I think that is in uh, at least one of the roots of, um, of our confusion and uh, difficulties over, over accountability. So on the one hand, I think do rightly push away so mechanically constructed, narrow-minded accountability measures. But on the other hand, things may have gone too far to the other extreme, where we have just a problem that you've cited. That is, how do we know when we are at the top? So, so one of the ways in, in which Dewey would think about accountability is, I think, um, through an important tension, which is that between expertise and public um, control of education. Um, and um, there is an essential place um, for expertise in education. Um, anyone who's ever um, become um, a, a teacher in a high school or an elementary school um, will tell you that even under ideal conditions, um, it takes a good three years to master the craft. Um, it is an extraordinarily demanding set of skills um, that one must be able to do simultaneously um, to be a good teacher. And so um, there is a real need um, in any system of accountability um, to draw upon educational expertise. Um, the problem with race to the top is that it, it precisely obliterates educational expertise. Um, that um, in, in creating a, a kind of cult around um, standardized um, test scores um, and using that as the dispositive measure, all of the sorts of things that educators um, would be able to, to provide to a system of accountability when they walk into a school, when they walk into classrooms, when they see what's going on, all of that becomes irrelevant information. And so, 
um, the, the trick is, you know, for Dewey, the trick is how do we, in this tension between expertise, educational expertise, um, and the fact that education should be a public good, um, how do we hold both of them? Um, but I, I think he would, um, as, as a person who certainly um, knew and respected educational expertise, he would have a great deal of difficulty with Race to the Top. I think we have time for maybe one more question before we, we go to lunch. And um, this gentleman. I think we. <laughs> <laughs> um, the phrase you used a moment ago, occupational. Psychosis. I'm sorry? Okay. I, I am having a little trouble hearing you. So I, I'm going to. This may be an instance in which I don't respond to your question, even though I think I am. I, do that to my students too many times. Um, and, and this would be kind of a summary point. And I, I, I think, you know, if there's, if there's one problem that I, I would cite first with, with Dewey's work is that it, it's trying to use the school for too much. Um, and, and once again, I, I think there's only so much time, there's so much, only so much energy. Dewey is often associated with uh, op uh, vocational training and uh, opportunities for vocational training. But I, I don't think you get a strong argument even for vocational training uh, from, from Dewey because everything has got, to, has, has got to be arranged in such a way to achieve his, his, his political goals, uh, his, his democratic aspirations would be a kinder, kinder way to, to, to put that. And the problem with, I mean, th there are those today who argue that uh, we ought to be more quickly move people into vocational tracks and things like that. The problem Dewey would have about that is that it militates against equality. This is going back to, to uh, uh, Neil's point um, about how do you bring equals together. And so the, the, the last point I would make about that, and I would use the opportunity uh, to respond to something Dr. Casey said, he, he's right in that Dewey is not a Rousseauian. That is referring to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's book, The Emile. But that book was an inspiration to progressive reformers. And Dewey does speak about it approvingly, but he, he criticizes several points of, of Rousseau. But, but here's the point that I want to make. Um, people think that Rousseau's Emile is just a book about educational practices, but, but it's not. It, it's a creation story. He has deliberate references to the book of Genesis there. And so, once again, I think that the difficulty, and this is the reason at times progressive education is sort of foundered on the rocks of, uh, 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 is, is because it's not just about education. It, it, has, it has democratic, it has political goals. Those might be fine, but two difficulties with that. One is maybe everyone doesn't agree with those, that, those particular democratic aspirations. And then number two, if you just try to do, do too much something's going to suffer. And I think that academic rigor at times and substance has suffered. That probably has nothing to do with your question, but <laughs> I wanted to say it. So, so, so I, I, I mean, I found that interesting. I don't know if I continue not answering your question. I'm not sure I entirely understood the question. I, I think it's about specialization in education, but I, but I do think Training for education. So let's see if I can manage to weave all of this together into, into one unified tapestry here. I, I, what's interesting about 
um, Dewey's view towards um, vocational education. Um, and I think it would be um, an interesting contrast to the way in which um, we educate people to be teachers, um, which, which is that Dewey thought that when you think about most vocational training, like how do you teach someone to be a carpenter? They don't go through long studies of the theory of carpentry. Um, they, they, you actually begin a process um, from the very beginning where students are working with wood under the guidance of someone who's a master of the craft. Um, and so Dewey would say, um, that's my vision of education. That's what we should be doing everywhere. His problem with vocational education um, was the larger social context of it in American history, um, where it was viewed um, as the place that we send those who can't work with their mind. They can only work with their hands. Um, the, so the, the class, the racial um, bifurcation around who ended up in vocational education who do, and who didn't. And the fact that vocational education was separated from education into democratic citizenship. So the fact that you work with your hands doesn't make it any less important for you to understand what it means to be a citizen in the society and exercise the rights and the obligations of citizenship. And so he, 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 he had this, this sort of um, uh, bifurcated view of, of vocational education where on the one hand he saw great potential in it as a model of education, but on the other hand, he had real problems with how it functioned. And the, the, precisely the problem with teacher education in this country um, is the fact that, um, if you will, it's so non-Dewean. Mm -hmm. um, so that um, what happens is that students go through um, uh, at, at least a year, maybe more, of entirely book learning about education. Um, without any practical experience in the classroom. And what happens in the classroom is so separated from what they're actually learning. So is it the, the, the learning in the, in the college context is not a reflection on what actually goes on in the classroom and pedagogy, um, but, but is this, this sort of disconnected. And, and for Dewey, the fact that his book would be one of the ones that would be included in this disconnected um, education of teachers, I'm sure he would find greatly ironic. Um, so I hope I, I got back to your question there a bit. I, I think I just hurt my neck nodding in agreement with you, Leo. Uh, <laughs> so thank you for that. And with that, we're going to uh, draw to a close. If you're staying for lunch, it is uh, two flights up the spiral staircase. Follow him. He lives here. He'll, tell, he'll, he'll show you the way. Uh, but thank you, Leo Casey, Hank Edmondson, Neil McCluskey, and Joe. Thank you very much. Thank you.